This is Pastor Stuart Schneider welcoming you to a service of worship at Community Presbyterian Church in Belfont, Kentucky. Come, let us worship the Lord together. Our first reading is from Romans, the 14th chapter, 1 through 12. Welcome those who are weak in faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. Some believe in eating anything, while the weak eat only vegetables. Those who eat must not despise those who abstain, and those who abstain must not pass judgment on those who eat. For God has welcomed them. Who are you to pass judgment on servants of another? It is before their own Lord that they stand or fall, and they will be upheld for the Lord is able to make them stand. Some judge one day to be better than another, while others judge all days to be alike. Let all be fully convinced in their own minds. Those who observe the day, observe it in honor of the Lord. Also those who eat, eat in honor of the Lord, since they give thanks to God. While those who abstain, abstain in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. We do not live to ourselves, and we do not die to ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each of us will be accountable to God. Listen for the word of the Lord in this reading. Our gospel reading is from Matthew, the 18th chapter, 21 through 35. Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, seventy-seven times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold together with his wife and children and all his possessions and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, Pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. 
So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Listen for the word of the Lord in this reading. Like most of you here, I'm a little older than my teeth. And I've got a backpack full of Presbyterian sermons from as far back at farther than I can remember. Most of them, I have to confess to you, made no imprint upon me at all. The only thing I can remember now, near 60 years later, Reverend Curry having said to me was, well, don't play with that in church. That happened after the cap gun that I had in my pocket that I was fiddling with so I didn't have to listen to Reverend Curry went off. Church seemed to me something that one did to benefit oneself at some indeterminate time in the future, of course. So nothing to do with the present with which I was so involved carrying things like cap guns around. Retired Anglican Bishop N.T. Wright apparently got much the same Christian education as I did because this is what he wrote. I started my thinking about Jesus' death with the assumption from what I'd been taught that the death of Jesus was all about God saving me from my, quote, sins so that I could, quote, go to heaven. That, of course, can be a quite revolutionary idea for someone who's never thought of it before, but it's not quite the revolution the early Christians were talking about. In fact, that way of putting it, taking on its own, significantly distorts what Jesus' first followers were saying. Did you get that? Jesus died to save us from our, quote, sins, so we could, quote, go to heaven, is not what the early Christians were thinking. Nobody ever mentioned to me when I was a kid the idea that my life was to be understood and shaped in relation to the final goal for which we were made and redeemed, that God, the Creator, intends to bring heaven and earth together at last, and that this plan had been decisively inaugurated in Jesus Christ. Nobody mentioned that to me. What was mentioned to me seemed more like a, a, a contract of sorts, a pension plan for the faithful servant. The bad news I took from those lengthy Sundays was that I had better mind my P's and Q's if I wanted to avoid hell, and who doesn't? The good news was that if I made a mistake, God would forgive me. Hallelujah! That takes all the stress out of it, doesn't it? Interesting concept there. If Mrs. Hill, my seventh grade English teacher, made a negative mark in my permanent record, it was going to be there until the sounding of the last trump. But God had a stack of get-out-of-jail cards that I could appeal to any time I wanted to. On one level, that's comforting and right. Ezekiel wrote, Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, says the Lord God. Turn then and live. On another level, though, it limits the world-changing revolution inaugurated by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus so as to be all about me. By focusing our attention on God's willingness to forgive, 
we miss the larger revolution occurring in our world right now, right here. We have a role to play in that revolution. Our actions have to be motivated by a commitment to furthering God's plan rather than being all about what's good for me. Our gospel passage today from Matthew is commonly called the parable of the unforgiving servant. So I named this sermon the unforgiving sermon to emphasize the ways we distort Christ's message when we comfort ourselves by thoughts of God's forgiveness and ignore our obligation to do our part. Here's how the parable goes. A servant owes several million dollars to his master. The master demands that he pay up, but he can't. In the way of the time, the master ordered him to be sold along with his wife and children and all his possessions to pay the debt. And here is where it gets interesting. The debtor slave falls on his knees before the master and begs, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Sounds a bit like Wimpy in the old Popeye cartoons. I will gladly pay you on Tuesday for a hamburger today. As a business negotiation, the servant's plea isn't very persuasive. I don't think it would carry the day were I to employ it when the electric bill comes due. But when the slave begs for patience, a slave begs for patience and forbearance, the master is moved to do the most surprising thing. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. He, he did what? We're not talking about chump change here. We're talking about major money, millions of dollars. He forgave a debt of several million dollars simply because the servant bowed before him, submitted to his authority, and cast his future and that of his family upon the grace of the master. And it worked. The one with power, the master, looked upon the condition of the one with no power, the slave, and so pitied him that he took upon himself the burden of the slave. This, this is astonishing. But parables are supposed to be astonishing. Their very hyperbole forces us to pay attention to them. So what is this parable forcing us to pay attention to? In the world in which we live, the one with power, God, pities us in our powerlessness and extends his forbearance to the ones with no power, us. And in his pity takes upon himself the burden of his servants. Remember, Peter began this discussion by asking, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Peter is asking how much nonsense he must endure from another member of his community before he can give up on that other without incurring blame himself. Jesus answers Peter, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. If the Lord is willing to excuse your grievous sin, what is to be the consequence of that forgiving? The collapse of the local economy? No, this parable has nothing to do with money. It has to do with furthering the goals of the Lord. It's not hard to find passages in the Bible approving of serving up the sinner with his just desserts. Jesus is setting forth a new direction. We, the forgiven, 
are to be about spreading God's patience, love, and forbearance into the world. Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and all the other commandments are summed up by this word, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. We would think then that the servant who, has, who was spared the consequences of his indebtedness would, in turn, extend forgiveness to others, reflecting God's love to others. Well, Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves, and he knows that forgiveness without repentance is harmful to us. We conveniently forget that the salvation of the first slave came at tremendous cost to the master, and so we miss the larger lesson. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, Pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. This time the debt is a couple of bucks, a hundred denarii. But the forgiven slave does what's legal, throwing his debtor into prison, rather than dealing with him as he himself had been treated. The basic point is this, and what I want you to remember. Christian life in the present, with his, its responsibilities and particular callings, is to be understood and shaped in relation to the final goal for which we have been made and redeemed, that God the Creator intends to bring heaven and earth together at last, and that this plan has been decisively inaugurated in Jesus Christ. We can scrupulously honor the demands of law, but if we do not reflect the love God has shown us onto those about us, we are like a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If we have not love, we are a nullity, an impediment to all those for whom, with whom we come into contact. The availability of God's forgiveness should empower us to be about our Father's goals, not a comfort and permission to those who have not loved to act contrary to God's goals. Amen. Please join with me as we affirm our faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.
tale of two churches. The first church was rich. Its pews were filled with captains of industry. They had a beautiful sanctuary, which was spotlessly maintained. They had a great organ that was a wonder of the Western world. Most of all, they had a pastor whose voice could be heard in the next county, who never made a mistake. Nothing ever happened during a service in that church. And so its members went forth and felt that their monetary contributions and their choice of their pastor was quite enough, and they went about their own way. The other church was a country church, poorly attended, always broke, with a pastor that misspeaks and trips and, well, he's just not very qualified, is he? But the members of that community, when Sunday was over, spent their time checking on one another, visiting in the hospital, going to visit the ill. They spent their time distributing what little funds they had for the good of others. And when they had no funds to distribute, they rolled up their sleeves and did work as volunteers. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God's people said, 